I'll never forget Christmas party that we had for our employees and my wife Mary. She says to the group, anyone want to get together on Mondays and study the Bible? And I ducked, wondering what was going to come next, and was frankly surprised when eight to ten people said, sure, I'd love to do that. So we started this group in New Albany on Monday nights at six o'clock, and the easy part was the potluck dinner. The next part is, what do you do about the scriptures? And so what we do is we just are going through the book of John, the gospel of John, a chapter at a time. And since we're gathering in Jesus' name, he shows up and he makes sure that the conversation continues. And what we've found to our astonishment is just how easy it is to have friends with faith to gather together in a small, intimate setting where we equally participate, where we read the scriptures, and where the Spirit of God teaches us His Word. It's a real joy. I'd highly recommend it. You might be surprised uh, how many people around you who are not declaring themselves Christians or doubting their faith would be really open to just an honest discussion. Uh, that's what Rob was surprised about, that how open they were. And, you know, that's really the place we want to be. We don't have to convince people that God is. God will do that himself. He just asks us to be people who love, people who listen, people who respect, people who build friendship, and uh, in so doing, help people experience him, experience him as well. We're continuing a series today called Now What? In which we're trying to look at now that Christ has come, died, rose again, how does that change life for us? What are some of the key things that we want to change in that? The uh, legendary, iconic uh, newscaster from the last half of the century, uh, last century, David Brinkley, once asked Ann Landers, the advice columnist, this question. He said, what's the number one question you get from people? And she responded very quickly. She said, the question is, what's wrong with me? This past week, on a, on a day that seemed warm, I got into my car from work and it had been sitting in the sun all day and I drove home thinking it was a nice warm day out. I went into the house, changed, went to my uh, son's soccer game. It was a state cup qualifying tournament, only to discover that my car was only warm because of the sun and it was really cold outside and I was in shorts and a sandal, so I froze for an entire game. But uh, they had played several games over the last couple of weeks, including a couple of games against Premier League teams that they actually won when they weren't supposed to. And they'd played some really good games. But this particular day, as I'm sure uh, all of us who have ever played sports can relate to, they came out and the team for the first half looked like they needed a nap. And three of them, including my son, were playing injured, so they weren't full strength in the first place. So it wasn't the best game. And something happened inside of me that uh, I can sometimes get a little bit embarrassed about. I am pretty competitive. I like to win. Um, And sometimes when I cheer, I can just get a little bit, just a little bit boisterous. And when I started to cheer and get a little bit boisterous, it always takes me back to a couple times in my past where I sinned. 
And I really embarrassed myself by the way I cheered. Now, I didn't get that far this week, but you know, I asked the question from all of us, what happens when you do something that starts to embarrass you? How do you deal with that? What happens uh, when you screw up? How does it come out? For me this last week, I was sitting freezing next to this other semi-boisterous fan, and everything goes quiet, and then all of a sudden, I hear myself say, shut up, Ross, don't be stupid. And I kind of had one of those, did I just say that out loud (laughs) moments? And I said it loud enough, I went, oh, crud, the guy next to me probably thinks I'm crazy talking to myself. Have you ever done that? Now, now maybe you do it a little less embarrassing. Maybe you don't do it in front of other people. But have you done that in your car after a bad day at work? Have you done it in your shower? Or have you done it somewhere else where you just went, did that really just come out of me? Um, In this series, we're going to look today at the life of Peter. Because Peter was one of these guys who was kind of uh, boisterous, competitive, loved to win. He was a man of initiative. And we know from the biblical record that he wasn't the most educated guy. In fact, he probably wasn't educated at all. But we know he was successful to a certain degree because the biblical record tells us that more than likely James and John, along with Peter, who were the three closest disciples to Jesus, were either Peter's employees or his business associates. He ran a small business. And he was a driven, successful man who commanded the attention of other people around him who would follow him. And Jesus meeting Peter, the very first time when he decides to call him, his name wasn't Peter at that point, it was Simon. And Jesus goes up to him and says, your name will no longer be Simon, but it will be Peter, which means the rock. Now for a guy who's competitive, who wants to be rocky in his life, that's a pretty good thing to hear, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty exciting. And he goes on and says, on this rock, I will build my church. Wow. This is a guy who's competitive, wants to win, and Jesus is speaking a destiny into his life that is right up his alley. And he's excited about it. Peter's, Peter's this interesting guy. He's the first guy to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, when all the people are starting to leave because Jesus taught something that was a little too controversial... Peter comes, or Jesus comes back to his disciples and says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter's the first to speak like usual. And he says, where would we go, Lord? There's no other place to go. And we see twice in Peter's life where he says to Jesus after Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's going to die and go to the cross, Peter twice says, I will die for you before I let you die. The first time he says it, Jesus responds by, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the plans of God. And the second time he says it is the night that Jesus is betrayed. And he responds to Peter's acclamation of how much he's going to be committed and says, yep, before the sun rises and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter does. And probably I think as I read the biblical text, the most painful part of that In one of the texts describing that instance, it says that just as Peter finished denying Jesus the third time, Jesus is led out, still bound up, and Jesus looks over and catches his eye just as he finishes denying him. Put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. Can you imagine how he felt? 
Can you imagine what he was thinking? You see, I suspect for most of you, if you're putting yourself in his shoes, that you know maybe you didn't feel quite that intensely, but I'll bet most of us at one point in our life have felt as intensely as you imagine Peter felt at that moment. This shame, this person that only hours before he said he would die for, and now he denied him, and Jesus knows it, runs out and weeps bitterly. And I can imagine the thoughts going through his mind. There are probably huge amplified versions of what came out of my mouth at the soccer place this last week. He's probably going, I am absolutely worthless. I am a hopeless, I am the hopeless scum of the earth. I am an utter disappointment. How humiliated can I be? We've probably all said those things in the car in the shower, maybe curled up on the floor of our our living room. Peter's embarrassed and he weeps bitterly. What will God think of me? How can I ever make this right? What can I do that would ever make this right? He said I'm the rock and I've said I'd stick with him to the end. And I wimped out. I've sinned too many times. How can he forgive me again? Peter is a man driven for success. And he's a man of bravado. Because all of us are tempted when we fail to try to bolster ourselves. And how many of us have had times when we have been unfaithful in some promise we made, whether it was to a wife, whether it was to a husband, whether it was to a business associate, whether it was unfaithful to a promise that we made to our kids, whether it was unfaithful to a promise we made to God to stop this area of sin in our life or to not do this again. How many of us have made these great bravado statements saying, I will never do this again no matter what, and we failed? And we put ourselves in the exact same place that Peter's in, this rock. John Maxwell, who is a uh, former pastor and uh, still does leadership development with pastors and Fortune 500 executives both, says this about failure and success. He says the most important quality for success is not one's family background. It's not an opportunity And it's surprisingly not even high morals because we all know scoundrels who have had great success. But it's how we deal with failure that determines whether we succeed or not. And for us as Christians, following Christ is the same way. When we sin, when we let Him down, when we make these hollow bravado statements that we're never going to do this again because we're going to be better than this for Jesus... Or we're going to be better than this for our spouse. Or we're going to be better than this for somebody. And we fail. How we understand how God looks at us. And how we need to look at ourselves in regard to that failure and sin. Determines everything in terms of our ability to walk in freedom and peace and hope in life. So let's take a look just for a minute 
at sin in the Bible since we have to understand it because sin is the source of most of our failure. Not all of it. Sometimes we make just bad judgments and it's not sin. But sin is the source of a lot of our failure in life. And God takes sin very seriously. In Genesis 2.16 and then again in Romans it says it probably most poignantly. It says sin leads to death. Now we know from the story of the garden that sin leads to death in terms of that's the reason we actually die even now as a human race. But we also know that it leads to death in many other ways. It leads to death of dreams. It leads to death of relationships. It leads to corruption in our lives. Sin leads to death. Some people think, ah, that's really harsh. You mean if I screw up, I'm worthy of death? Think of it this way. Put yourself for a minute in the role of the creator. You are the creator of the universe. Okay? Go with me for a minute on this. You've created all of mankind, and from now on, just for metaphor's sake, we're going to talk about mankind being porcelain. It's weird. Just go with me. Okay? You as the creator of the universe, you create this wonderful person who is this beautiful porcelain cup because you as the Creator love a good mocha in the morning. You love the feel of the smoothness of the cup. You love the beauty of the porcelain. You love the feel of the warmth that bleeds through it on your hands as you get up in the morning and you love taking a drink of that in the morning as the Creator. Now you're going to have a hard time following me on the next one. You also create this other porcelain thing called a throne. And unfortunately... You like to sit on it way too much. And even though the doctor says not to sit on it, you still sit on it too much. Now, just, okay, that's hard. The creator has a doctor, okay? And I know that it's probably kind of getting to the TMI phase of things when when we think of God creating a human as his toilet, okay? But go with me because it works. One day, the cup... This beautiful porcelain cup, which, by the way, guys, is not the dainty cup where you raise your finger. It's this great big beer stein cup that you drink your mocha out of, okay? It's a manly cup. One day, this manly cup decides, you know what? I think the swirly action and the look of this other porcelain thing is really cool, and I'd rather be like that. Because you know what? A lot of times for us, sin is when we start comparing ourselves to other people And we try to strive to prove ourselves to be something other than God created us to be. And so all of a sudden we decide it looks more fun to be this and instead of what what we're supposed to be. So we decide as the porcelain cup that we're going to change our handle to look a little bit more like that other porcelain object. And we're going to drill a hole in the bottom of our cup so that we get the swirly action too. And all the stuff every time in the morning when he pours the mocha in there, it swirls out the bottom. and, And sin is like that. Sin is something that corrupts God's purpose in our life. And honestly, sometimes we don't even know how disgusting the sin is. If you're the creator, what are you going to do with that cup? You're going to fix it or throw it away, right? In fact, if you're a manly man, you're going to put, make it a fence post ornament and you're going to get your 44 caliber out and you're going to take target practice, right? But here's the history line of the entire Bible. We are all porcelain cups who have corrupted by our own 
comparisons, our own self-will, our own actions, what God really wants us to live like and how beautiful he really created us to be. And yet the storyline of the whole history of the Bible and the whole history of God with mankind is that he is far more patient than we are. He goes to far greater lengths to fix us to coax us with His kindness out of our self-will so that we can become this beautiful, wonderful thing He's created us to be. He is far more patient than we ever would be in that situation. In fact, if you read passages like Genesis 15, 16, which is just kind of an obscure passage, but you see how how God waits generations, hundreds of years sometimes, trying to be kind and draw people out of their self-will so they can come back to Him and discover who He is. He is so amazingly patient and kind. But let's look at this a little further. Because not only is He patient and kind, but in order for us to understand how to deal with things when we screw up, we need to look, I think, even at just a couple terms that the Bible uses to describe how God sees us after Christ, how He looks at us when we sin. And to set that up, because we're going to use Peter as an illustration, I'm going to have you look at a video right now where Peter, uh, after having denied Jesus, is meeting with Jesus over breakfast. And it's where they finally deal with forgiveness and restoration. And we're going to draw back to that as we talk about some of these terms coming up. So watch this video. After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter became sad because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. When you were young, you used to get ready and go anywhere you wanted to. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. In saying this, 
Jesus was indicating the way in which Peter would die and bring glory to God. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. We know that sin brings death. For Peter, if you had seen the passage right before, this is actually just direct quotes acted out from the Bible, so you just got the Scripture delivered to you that way. But if you saw the passage before this, you would have seen Peter kneeling on the beach. Jesus has appeared to him two times. This was the third time. But the issue has never been resolved. Peter denied him, and yet the issue's never been breached. Peter never asked him forgiveness. It's no record of it until this instance. And Peter is kneeling on the beach, caught in his shame. And like many of us, when we're caught in the shame, he's probably sitting there thinking, Jesus called me a rock. He's been around me the last couple of weeks, but I'm still a failure. How can I face him? He's kind, but he can't believe I'm ever going to be this rock again. And so he basically gets up and says, I can't be that. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going to go back to fishing. And the day ends up being one of those pile-on days. Have you ever had one of those days where things are going bad? You had an argument with your wife or somebody at the uh, argument or a bad day at the work and you come home and your alternator goes out and you're supposed to fix this thing in the house and you've got to get a screwdriver out and the screw strips and you can't get the on screw out and then you break something and just everything piles on. Peter goes out fishing saying, I can't be this so at least I'll go do what I know how to do and he gets skunked. So I can imagine him coming back into shore as daylight begins to break, going, man, God, what is up with this? It's okay, I realize I failed you, I can't do this, but can I at least do what I used to do? Can I at least have something go well? Where are you, God? And then Jesus shows up on the shore. And if you recall the Scriptures, What is played out in the next few scenes is the exact same scenario that was played out when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. He hollers out to him and says, have you got any fish? And he says, no. And he says, throw out your net on the other side. Well, you got to understand in that day, the nets were not real fancy like we've got today. They were big old honking ropes and you didn't fish with them during the day because the fish could see them. Why would you throw a net in the water when the fish could see them? They're going to run the other way. Jesus says, throw, throw the net out on the other side. And they get such a huge catch. I mean, this is like one of those epic catches in our life. It's the kind of thing that we tell our great-grandkids. And we actually count it. They counted it. They actually recorded it in the Bible. It was 153 large fish. It was so big they were shocked the net didn't break. And Peter, who hours earlier was kneeling on the beach saying, I'm just a miserable failure with no bravado left in him, a little bit of bravado comes back and he says, wow, a miracle. Maybe he'll accept me now. And he jumps off the boat and and, uh, swims the hundred yards to shore. And then a few minutes later, we see him sitting around the campfire. How did Jesus view him in this time? There's a couple terms in the Bible. One of them is is called righteousness. The Bible tells us that God gives us, through Jesus' work, He gives us His righteousness. Righteousness basically means God has put us in right standing with Him. 
There's another word often used associated with that too, called justified. And through the work of Jesus, the fact that He went to the cross, He took death and sin for us, we are justified. We can be viewed just as if we have never sinned. You see, Jesus, these last couple weeks before this incident, has been around Peter, pursuing him, talking him kindly. Peter's thinking, I have no ability to ever be the rock again. And Jesus is continuing to see him as the rock because that's what him giving us his righteousness and him justifying us means. It means he views us the way he originally created us to be. This beautiful porcelain manly mug that he's going to get to take pleasing drinks out of whatever our original purpose was. And yet Peter is over here viewing himself saying, I'm not that. And see, that's an issue. Because so often we, when we fail, when we sin, we condemn ourselves like Peter did. But Jesus in John 3.17 says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Paul in Romans 8 says, Therefore there is now no longer any condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. If you have repented and made Jesus your Lord, there is no longer any condemnation. And He wants us to see ourselves here, not there. Here. Jesus is all about speaking potential in our lives. It's not that He is unaware of the seriousness of sin that's still going on. But the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice when we repent is that not only does He forgive us of the things we know about, but He has forgiven us of everything. Think about it for a second. Why would Jesus wait Two weeks to even talk about it. You see, so often we get all worried about following Jesus and this whole sin thing that we become so sin-focused instead of staying God-focused that we think we have to deal with all of our sin right away or God's never going to accept us. But you know what the reality is? God doesn't deal with all of our sin all at once, all the time. With Peter, he didn't feel the need to deal with it for several weeks. But God is still, even when he has not dealt with it, he's still pursuing us kindly. He is still speaking his potential into us. He's not judging us. He's not condemning us. If we feel those things, that is us and it's Satan. It's not him. If we have committed our lives to him, there is no condemnation. That's how he views us, not this. There's this other word that he uses, which is sanctification, which actually goes along with the idea of him dealing with sin when he wants to. He recognizes that, yes, we're still over here, even though he sees us that way. But this big word called sanctification is just that he's going to lead us by his spirit to deal with these things when it's the right time. Instead of us having to make this witch hunt for sin in our lives, basically sanctification, the responsibility of God in that is that He gives us His Spirit. And what does He say one of the main roles of His Spirit is? It's to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment and to lead us to freedom. 
But we take that responsibility away from God sometimes by going on witch hunts for sin in our own lives or other people's lives instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to deal with it when He's ready. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to create those over-the-breakfast moments like He did with Peter. We get so tense and worried that we never live in the freedom that God wants us to live in. Because even while we're here, He wants us to live in the freedom of here. And just trust Him to lead us and deal with it. Our only responsibility in sanctification is that we stay in the room. We pursue Him. We read the Bible and we ask God, show me what you want me to know for today. Because the worries of today are enough for today. That's a scripture if you didn't know that. He calls us, even though we're still over here in reality, He calls us a new creation. That everything old, everything old has passed away. You know, sanctification is a little bit like World War II. Most people believe that the World War II was basically won at the end of D-Day. And the time we're living in between here and there is the time between D-Day and the return of Christ when everything is done. There's still battles to be fought. There's still stuff to be won. But God sees us there. And that's where He wants us to see ourselves. And He wants us to live there. So you know, one of the most important lessons for us as Christians to learn is the same lesson that a lot of ski instructors teach their people their very first time they try to snow ski. And that's how to fall. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. We have the righteousness of Jesus. This Proverbs verse almost indicates, almost foreshadows the fact that we can expect to fall. But if we learn to live and stay in the righteousness of Jesus, not our own, if we learn to live there, not here, where God sees us, not where we see us, then we don't live in the shame that keeps us buried here and living a life of calamity. We free ourselves to get back up and stay on the path. Jesus always speaks our potential to us. You know, I think the most beautiful thing about this story that we just saw on the screen a minute ago of of Peter is that Jesus asks him the question three times, once for every sin, once for every denial. He doesn't want the forgiveness to be anything but complete. But what doesn't translate well in English on this is that the first two times Jesus asked him, do you love me, Peter? The word he used was actually a word that meant, do you love me perfectly? Unconditionally, absolutely. And Peter's bravado, the little last gasp of bravado that caused him to jump in the water and try to swim to see if he could then please Jesus, melts away. And Peter says, no, I can only love you with an imperfect brotherly love. And then on the third time Jesus asks it, he says, Peter, 
Do you love me with that imperfect brotherly love? And Peter weeps. Have you ever faced a moment where you, where you were disappointed in yourself because somebody who you loved and respected lowered their expectations of you? It probably felt like that to Peter, but that's not actually what happened here with Jesus. Because notice that Jesus responds to Peter the exact same way. He's just happy Peter's being honest. See, we don't have to look at our sin and respond with bravado to say we're never going to do it again because you know what? We might. All Jesus wants of us is to say, I am this imperfect person, Jesus. I can never be that perfect rock you wanted me to be. I'm never going to live up to that. And Jesus says, not only is that okay, but he responds to him and says, feed my sheep. You know, the first two times Peter, I'll bet, was thinking when Jesus said, feed my sheep, saying, oh man, I can't do the perfect love. And he's saying, feed my sheep. And how am I ever going to live up to that? The third time, he knows that Jesus sees him for who he is. And he knows that he sees him for who he is. And Jesus still says, feed my sheep. Simon, you have a purpose. You have a plan. Come follow me. And then it's even beautiful that he talks about this grand and glorious, I guess if you can call martyrdom a grand and glorious death. But it's something that a guy like Peter would have been going, yes, Lord, that's what I promised to give you before. But only when Peter comes to the place where he's real and saying, I don't have it in me to go there. Does Peter, does God say, I'm going to take you there. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take you to that goal, that purpose, that honor, that place of leadership, whatever he's called you to do. I'm going to take you there. He just wants real. No bravado. He wants us to take our failures and just give them to him as they are. You know, Chuck Colson the uh, 38-year-old special counsel to President Richard Nixon years ago. We all know, if we know our history, ended up in jail because of the Watergate scandal. He says this about him learning to deal with failure and learning to see how God sees him. He says, as I sat on the platform, he was waiting to preach at a prison. My turn at the pulpit, to wait, awaiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back to in time to scholarships and honors earned Cases argued and won. Great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life, he says, had been a perfect success story. The great American dream fulfilled. But all at once, he says, I realized that it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in this prison or to fulfill a destiny in my life. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. And Peter sitting on the seashore that day, God uses his greatest humiliation and turns him into a great leader. Failure is something we all face. 
For Jesus, there were two betrayers. There was Judas and there was Peter. One turned his failure back to God by being honest and receiving the grace and the picture he had of him. The other one, his future was literally buried in his shame. How we respond to sin and failure really determines most of everything in our life as far as success, as far as living in the peace and presence of God and the joy and the purpose that God has for us. If you're here today, and I think all of us have been in that position at one time or another, I would suspect some of you are here today and you are Peter on the seashore. You're kneeling down and you're going, I screwed up again. I made a bunch of hollow promises and I failed again. I'm just going to give up on this view of who I am, of who God says I am. I'm just going to go back to fishing. Some of you probably years ago already went back to fishing and you haven't gotten out of the boat yet. I want to invite you today to stop condemning yourself because God is not condemning you. God, in fact, is pursuing you today with kindness and patience that is beyond amazing. To me, I think for all of us as Christians, or if you are considering being a Christian, one mark of maturity in learning to follow Christ is simply this, that we get to the place in our life where we realize with all realness, with no defensiveness left, how utterly weak and sinful we are and can be. Over here. But we don't live there. Because the more we get to know God, the more we live here and realize how absolutely amazingly loving and patient and kind and accepting and empowering and blessing He is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. We recognize both, but we live here. Lord, I just pray for the people here who are still in that boat, having given up on the dream. And I pray for all of us who have been tempted to condemn ourselves this week. I pray, Father, that your spirit right now would touch each and every one and that you would demonstrate your kindness to them. That you would free all of us, Lord, from condemning ourselves. That we would receive and hear and believe and trust the potential that you are speaking into us now that we can view ourselves as you originally created us to be, as beautiful, as good, as worthy as the pinnacle of your creation with a good purpose. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves there. Touch us now. Fill us with your presence. That we would know that and know your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. If you, uh, they're not here because I'm over time and I wasn't watching the clock. 
If you're here and you're one of those people on the shoreline and you are, uh, or you are in the boat, or you are just simply condemning yourself, don't leave today without having somebody pray for you. If you know somebody who you trust praying for you, grab them before you leave here. If you don't, then come down front and have somebody pray for you. It's not a big altar call. We're not trying to make this a great big altar call deal. The reason we pray down here is simply because everybody's going that way and everybody's talking that way, and this is the easiest, quietest place to pray. Don't go away without getting prayed for. God wants to take that condemnation from you and allow you to live there in life. God bless.